Let's pray. Holy God, Word made flesh, let us come to this Word open to being surprised. Silence our agendas, banish our assumptions, cast out our casual detachment, confound our expectations, clear the cobwebs from our ears, penetrate the corners of our hearts with this Word. We know that you can, we pray that you will, and we wait with the great anticipation. Amen. You can find today's Old Testament passage in, on page 628. I'll be reading from Isaiah, chapter 12, verses 2 through 6. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among all the nations, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be known in all the earth. Shout aloud and sing for joy, O royal Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. The Lord, word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament lesson on this third Sunday of Advent comes from Paul's letter to the Philippians, the fourth chapter, uh, verses 4 through 7. So listen now for the word of God to the church. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So joy is something that we Presbyterians talk about a fair amount. But in practice, I'll be the first to say it, we may not be the best at it. There's a story that has often been told about a conference that was held at a Presbyterian church in Omaha, Nebraska. And as part of a worship service at that conference, attendees were handed out, uh, were handed a helium-filled balloon on their way into the sanctuary. And early in the service, worship leaders told the congregants to release their balloon at any point in the service when they felt like expressing the joy in their hearts. I guess they figured they weren't going to get a whole lot of hallelujahs or praise the Lord's, so why don't we just make the whole thing a little bit more nonverbal, right? Um, so throughout the service, balloons would drift up periodically, and it really was quite beautiful. But the interesting thing was that at the end of the service, as the benediction was being offered, people looked around and they realized more than a third of the balloons had never been released the people were just sitting there dutifully holding them. And maybe these were just 
good Presbyterians trying to do this whole balloon bit decently and in order. We don't want to be crazy with our balloons. Or it may be that we as a group aren't as free with our expressions of joy as we could be. Even so, if we were going to try to boil down the theme and purpose of Paul's letter to the Philippians and, and concentrate it in just one word, I think that word would have to be joy. In four short chapters, Paul uses the word joy or rejoice at least 15 times. He prays for the Philippians with joy. He writes that the unity he sees in the church brings him joy. He encourages the people to continue to give themselves freely in service to Christ, to pour themselves out like a libation offering to God, because Paul knows that if they can live that way, that they will all experience great joy. And then here, toward the end of the letter, in today's reading, Paul simply calls on his brothers and sisters to embrace joy in their living. Rejoice in the Lord always, he says. Again, I will say, rejoice. So it's no mystery why Christians throughout the centuries have referred to this hopeful little letter as the epistle of joy. What makes all of this truly amazing is that Paul is writing this ode to joy from a prison cell. And we don't know for sure where that prison was. Some say it was Caesarea by the sea. Others say it was in Ephesus. Some look at the references to the imperial guard in this letter and think that must mean that he was imprisoned in Rome. Truth be told, the place is probably not all that important. What is important is that Paul was writing about good news of great joy while sitting in terrible and fearful conditions. He was filthy, cold, hungry, and very alone. And each night when he went to sleep, he had no idea what the next sunrise might bring, whether it might be the day of his release or the day of his martyrdom. And none of this dampened his joy as he thought about his good friends in Philippi. What does it matter that I am suffering in this way, Paul wrote to them? Just this, that Christ is proclaimed in every way, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And then later in the letter, Paul expresses again joy in the assurance that his suffering will not be in vain because he knows that the Philippians will carry the banner of Christ faithfully long after he is gone. Nineteen hundred years later, another disciple of Christ embraced a similar kind of joy. On the 21st of November in 1943, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian who had been imprisoned by the Nazis, wrote a letter of his own. He'd been sitting in Tegel military prison for eight months, awaiting trial. At the time of his arrest, the Nazis really had no idea that Bonhoeffer was part of an elaborate conspiracy against Adolf Hitler. They didn't know that he was a spiritual leader of a group of faithful Christians who saw Hitler's political leadership as completely antithetical 
to the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. They really didn't know it, and they didn't have much on him early on. They just had suspicions, really. But even so, Bonhoeffer was arrested, and he was initially treated like a dangerous felon. He was surrounded by men in other cells who had already been condemned to die, one of whom wept so loudly through Bonhoeffer's first night that it was impossible for Bonhoeffer to sleep. He was initially moved to, uh, he was eventually, rather, moved to more comfortable quarters up on the third floor. But even then, that room held only a hard plank bed, a wooden stool, and a necessary bucket. And that cell would serve as his home for the next one and a half years until he was secretly moved to Buchenwald in February of 1945. And when the plot against Hitler was finally discovered, Bonhoeffer was moved to Flossenburg concentration camp where he would be hanged with other co-conspirators just two weeks before American forces liberated the camp. But like Paul, Bonhoeffer, during his imprisonment, found ways to ingratiate himself to his captors. He would counsel them and talk to them, and he formed tenuous but genuine relationships with them. And that's what made it possible for him to write much longer and more frequent letters to his friends and relatives, much more than the one short letter for every 10 days that other prisoners were allowed. And it was one of these longer letters that was written to a friend and confidant, Eberhard Bethge, on the 21st of November, 1943. Christmas was coming. It would be the first Christmas that Bonhoeffer would spend in the isolation of his prison cell. And his letter began with memories of much happier Christmases. He recalled that Eberhard had been the first to introduce Bonhoeffer to one of his most cherished holiday traditions. It was you, he wrote, who really first opened up to me the world of music making that we have carried on during the weeks of Advent. And then Bonhoeffer did something that he was remarkably able to do throughout his imprisonment. He found a ray of light. He found some hope. He found a spiritual silver lining, even in the midst of his bondage and despair. Life in a prison cell, he wrote, may well be compared to Advent. One waits, hopes, and does this, that, or the other, things that are really of no consequence. The door is shut, and it can only be opened from the outside. So our physical situation is obviously far removed from Bonhoeffer's. We are not locked up in a cell, at least not a literal one. But many of us do feel imprisonments of one kind or another. Perhaps it is a job or a difficult relationship or a precarious financial situation. Perhaps you are ill, or someone you love is in trouble. We all experience difficulties from time to time that leave us feeling powerless. And this common experience of imprisonment was actually used by Southern writer Thomas Wolfe to open his famous work, Look Homeward, Angel. These are his words, naked and alone, 
we came into exile. In her dark womb, we did not know our mother's face. From the prison of her flesh have we come into the unspeakable and incommunicable prison of this earth. Which of us has known his brother? Which of us has looked into his father's heart? Which of us has not remained forever prison pent? Which of us is not forever a stranger and alone? So these letters of Paul and Bonhoeffer remind us that these prisons are the places where the promises of Advent speak the loudest. Just as they did to a poor priest in his old age whose wife had never been able to bear him children. Just as they did to a penniless peasant girl who ended up pregnant out of wedlock. Just as they did to nomadic shepherds who carried no weight or respect or influence in their world. All of them were trapped in prison cells of one kind or another, and all of them were waiting and hoping for something better. Keeping busy doing this, that, or the other, things that were really of no consequence. And they all knew that there would be no escape from their bondage, no liberation from their suffering, unless the door that kept them hemmed in would somehow be opened from the outside. And then in steps Advent with its prophetic promise that by some miracle, God would open the door and set them free. It was this same unseen but hoped for promise that Henry Wadsworth Longfellow would claim in the dark days of 1864. The poet's first wife, Mary Potter, had died nine years before due to complications arising from a miscarriage. His second wife, Frances Appleton, had died in 1861 from severe burns that she suffered when a candle caught her dress on fire. Longfellow himself had been badly burned as he tried desperately but unsuccessfully to put out the flames. And the first Christmas after Francis's death, Longfellow wrote a simple entry in his diary. How inexpressibly sad are all holidays. The following December, the emotional prison closed in even more. As Christmas approached, he wrote this, I can make no record of these days. Better leave them wrapped in silence. Perhaps someday God will give me peace. And then on Christmas Day, his pen would write only this. A Merry Christmas, say the children, but that is no more for me. Tragically, Longfellow's sorrows only continued in 1963. That autumn, he received word that his eldest son, Charles, who was a lieutenant in the Army of the Potomac, had been shot in the shoulder. The bullet had struck his spine, and it had crippled him. That Christmas, Longfellow could no longer bring himself to write anything in his journal. The darkness and pain of his prison was just too deep. And in light of this history, Longfellow's writing during the very next Christmas, in 1864, can only be understood as miraculous. 
The carnage of war had gotten even worse, worse than anyone could have imagined. But somehow Longfellow's pen began to rise up in defiance of that pain. He never could have opened the door to that prison himself. It was a door that only could have been opened from the outside. But that Christmas in 1864, the poet sat down at his desk and penned these verses. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth. Goodwill to man. Whatever may have imprisoned your spirit, whatever door seems immovably closed to you, Advent reminds us that the Lord is near. And it may seem like mere sentimentalism or perhaps even folly, but voices like Paul. And Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and Dietrich Bonhoeffer all suggest that even though hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth and goodwill to men, God will find a way to open that door for you from the outside. So as scripture bids us on this Advent morning, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Amen.